stands as one of the greatest minds that this nation has ever produced. He wrote so much more than this sermon. But it is what he is mostly known about and caricatured as. In fact, he wrote much on God being most glorified in us when we are most satisfied or pleased in him. And yet you don't hear those things about this man. See, unfortunately, our post-Christian culture has actually reduced Edwards and his sermon to a caricature of an angry preacher preaching about an angry God bringing fire and brimstone almost with a twinkle in his eye. As though it almost brings Edwards satisfaction and joy to preach these things that he preached to that congregation. But just to give you a taste of Edward's sermon, this is what he says. He says in it, the bow of God's wrath is bent. We just read about a bent bow, didn't we? And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. I don't think I've ever preached that boldly. Now that's how he preached and there was chains that was brought. See, many people, Christian and non-Christian alike, hate the sound of God being angry and wrathful towards sinners, much less His people Israel. Now why? I believe one reason is because God is a God of love, if anything, especially in our culture. And that definition of love is the definition that we breathe into it, not the definition of love that we necessarily see in the Bible. I mean, could there be any just reason for a loving God to be angry? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Not just, is it okay for God to be angry? Can you imagine a situation in which it's okay for God, who is a God of love, to be angry? Maybe you can't this morning. But this morning, we're back in our Isaiah series, looking at Jesus, who is king, servant, and also victorious conqueror. And we're, con- we're concluding Isaiah's introduction to this book this morning with a love song gone very wrong about the beloved's vineyard. Uh, you might have noticed that. Now, you'll remember that Isaiah's intro has three sections. Chapter 1 was the first section. Uh, there we saw that Isaiah spoke of a vineyard in verse 1-8, where the remnant of the Lord preserves as the vineyard. Uh, then uh, you'll remember in Isaiah 3, 12 to 4, 1, he speaks of that vineyard again. It was despoiled. And then God says that he's going to actually judge those who have despoiled his vineyard. But the flashes of light and hope that we have seen up to this point seem to vanish where God, here in Isaiah 5, even pronounces himself in his own relentless judgment on the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And this morning what we're going to see is this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. That our loving, our loving God's justified anger and wrath will be satisfied. Our loving God's justified anger and wrath will be satisfied. Now let's just pray quickly as we go into this text, because I'm going to need some help. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are going to be thinking about your wrath and your anger and your justice. And Father, um, none of us, none of us, are worthy to speak these things except that you have called us to in Christ. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would be exalted in your justice. Lord, that you would be exalted in all of your radiant beauty and glory and your justice. Do this for the glory of your name we do ask. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to see is in verse one, verses 1 to 7. We see this, this story uh, in 1 to 7, this song 
that we are told. Now, what we're going to see here is that God actually, in this story, destroys his vineyard because his good care resulted in bad fruit. He destroys his vineyard because his good care resulted in bad fruit. Now, the irony is really thick. You probably even caught it without anybody calling your attention to it as it was being read. But here, Isaiah begins with what sounds like a love song, like Song of Solomon, to my beloved and his vineyard. But you'll remember and you'll, you'll notice that it actually quickly shifts into a picture of judgment. And this, friends, is a love song gone very wrong. Just look at verses 1 to 7 again as we look at those verses and read them. Here's what he says. He says uh, there in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My, lo- my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with church choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall, <clears throat> shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they have rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now here, you'll notice first that God has lavished His grace on His people. You, you cannot miss the character of God that's on display in this text. I mean, as you read, you'll notice that He is showing tender, loving, intentional affection for His vineyard. He cared for them in every way that a good vine dresser could. He cleared the stones. He planted choice vines and even built a double wall around them because they were His creation from beginning to end. He, he would have glory brought about through his garden. The glory of the gardener would be displayed in the garden that he has created with his very own hands. And God provided them with every good thing. And he protected them from every bad thing. That's why God asks, what more could he have done for his vineyard in verse 4? Now, not only did God protect and provide for them, take note that he also looked expectantly for pleasure in the sweet fruit they would produce. He was anticipating that sweet fruit was to come. In fact, verse 7, there he calls uh, Judah his pleasant planting. They were his pleasant plant, and he, he longed to see what would happen with Judah and what they would produce. And he even built, notice, a watchtower to dwell in the garden and dug, and dug a wine vat. Now Why? Because God waited expectantly for the sweet fruit of his labors. And the people that he called and created to image him to the nations, he was looking for what they would do. But notice, God says, I looked for it to yield grapes twice in verses 2 and 4. 
He was looking and watching this garden. It's not as though he built the garden and then walked away and didn't know what was going to happen to it. He was sitting there watching to see what would happen. And then notice also this, that not only did he lavish grace on his people, God looked for good fruit. But but what did he find when he was looking for this good fruit in verses 2 and 4? Well, you'll notice he looked for good fruit, but both times he found wild grapes. Wild grapes. Now, when you hear wild grapes, you might be thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, Especially if you had been with my family this summer when we were in uh, Maine on Cadillac Mountain and we found wild blueberries, right? Uh, They were excellent. We loved finding those wild berries. They seemed very good to us. We tasted them. They were actually quite tasty. God did a good thing in those wild grapes, those wild berries on the mountain. But that's not exactly what's being described here. In fact, the language behind these wild grapes that are mentioned here uh, actually in the Hebrew speaks of it with a word that also means stinky or worthless. I wish, I really wish that the Hebrew, the, the ESV would have put stinky grapes here. I think that would be better. I like stinky grapes, not to eat, but like, it, it explains it better, doesn't it? And so here, God comes to his garden and he's looking for sweet, tasty grapes, but he finds stinky grapes. This is not good fruit that he worked towards, it is bad fruit. And bad fruit says something about the gardener. See, God's so angry about working and looking for good fruit and finding bad fruit, he's so angry that he actually removes, notice, his protection from external enemy. He he removes that double wall. His pruning is removed for sanctification and his provision for the blessings of rain that are so necessary to grow are gone. He gives his garden over to briars and thorns, an image that you can't miss uh, just inlaid with direction angles, arrows going back to Genesis 3.18 where man sinned against God and God cursed the ground with thorns to, to work against him as he worked. Here we see that the garden is cursed. But also notice what good fruit it was that God was looking for and what bad fruit he found. Because he's not just talking about stinky grapes. He's actually talking about bad spiritual fruit. And I think in our text he tells us what that bad spiritual fruit is. Uh, Notice in verse 7 what he says. The, The same word that he used for looked as he was watching to see what fruit would spring up is used here uh, yet again in verse 7 where it says that he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Uh, He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. I like what Alec Moyer says here as he's speaking of this text. He says, Jesus, our justice, is the righting of wrongs. Justice is the righting of wrongs, while bloodshed is the inflicting of wrongs. Righteousness is right living and right relationship with others, while outcry speaks of wrong relationships and the screams of the oppressed. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, we want to welcome you. It's good to have non-Christians here. Uh, We we love to to have non-Christians here that we can enter into relationship with and for you to be exposed to the gospel. But maybe this morning you're here and you struggle You struggle to think about an angry God because you are still so angry at the unjust Christians, the Christians that do not practice justice all around you. 
And maybe you're even thinking specifically of some Christians who have taken advantage of you or others and did not live justly. And that, that makes sense. I can get why that would cause some cognitive dissonance in you. Like, how, how can this be what God is like if this is his people? See, God's people should image him as the garden was meant to give glory to the gardener. They should strive to live just and righteous lives just like their God. But catch this. None of us are as just as God is. None of us profess that. And not all who claim to be the people of God are the people of God. Just a couple of things you need to know. Not all of us are as just as God, and not all of us who claim to be, not all who claim to be the people of God are the people of God. You know, we, you can see this in all kinds of ways. Uh, a Halloween illustration might be helpful because we just got done with Halloween. Uh, I noticed in my neighborhood, I don't know about you, but I had more uh, Elvis impersonators uh, visiting than usual, right? We always have a lot of Elvis impersonators, never so much as on Halloween. And, and you'll notice that when you see Elvis impersonators, whether on Halloween or otherwise, that some of those Elvis impersonators are either better or worse at looking like Elvis. Some are either better or worse at sounding like Elvis, but I've never seen an Elvis impersonator that's made me actually doubt the historical person of Elvis, right? I mean, you look at it and you go like, okay, yeah, you're, maybe you're going for the older Elvis or something, right? But you're not, you don't look like Elvis that I would expect. The blue suede shoes are not fooling me, right? And yet at the same time, it never makes me go, I wonder if there's actually an Elvis. See, the reality is, is that uh, there, there's the same truth that we find in Christians. We are merely signs that are pointing to the real Christ. And here's my hope. If you're a non-Christian, I hope that you stick around a little bit. And I hope that what you notice in our body with our Christians is that though we are not perfect, at Trinity Bible Church, you will find an imperfect people striving to live just and righteous lives that are authentic and look like Jesus, and ever increasingly so. Give us a chance. We'd love to, to hopefully show you what it looks like to seek to live like our God lives. That's what we're aiming for. But there's another thing here for Christians, something that we need to take note of. Did you take notice that God is actually speaking to Israel and not the nations here? Don't miss this. We have a new and better covenant in Christ, but God still inspects fruit. We see that all over the New Testament. And, and what that, that's important to know is, is that our fruit actually speaks to the nature of the tree and whether or not it's alive or not. Now in Matthew 7.19, you'll remember that when Jesus showed up, he said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Speaking of judgment. And then in John 15 too, Jesus actually differentiates between fruitless and fruitful branches. Speaking of those professing Christ as being fruitful. But, but not only that, he says there are those who don't have true faith. And those are fruitless branches. And here's what he says of those fruitless branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. That it might bear more fruit. And later he says that those that have been cut off and taken away are thrown into the fire. I think he got that straight from Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus said it. And, and so Jesus is here very interested in the fruit that is produced by the people of God. In other words, fruitfulness speaks to whether or not you have true faith and have been justified by God. Now there is a category for thinking that you are a Christian and not being one. Now, let me just say that again. There is a category of thinking you are a Christian and not being one. 
And that is not a category that I created. That's a category that we see throughout the New Testament. You can be self-deceived about the nature of who you are. Now, why? Why do I know that this is true? Well, here, Jesus Himself says, no spiritual fruit means no Jesus root. Right? So in other words, if you have no fruit as a Christian and part of the new covenant then he's saying the problem isn't that you have no fruit as much as what it means, which is that you have not been connected to the root who is Jesus. See, Jesus is the righteous judge. And he says that you have been united with him by faith. You will be fruitful. That's a promise. So either you get cut off or you get cut. Either way, you get cut. And the difference is that God cuts fruitful branches to produce more fruit and more life. Right? I mean, ultimately, we know that the, the, the result of all that we do is a crown of righteousness, which isn't just a shiny golden crown with jewels. It actually points to eternal life that is the gift of what it means to be united to Jesus. So if you're united to Christ, the reward isn't just like better bling, it's eternal life. That's what God offers those who are united to Jesus. They will be fruitful and life-giving from now into eternity. But what we know is, is that those who are not fruitful do not have the life that is only to be found in the righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ. So are you connected to the Son? What does fruitfulness look like? I'm sure you're asking yourself if you have fruit. Uh, if you're one that's prone to like being really nervous about your salvation, some people um, can be prone towards self-doubt in a, in a way that is unhealthy. In other words, you might be a Christian but struggle to believe it, and you need friends and a body to encourage you in that way. So if that's you, just know that you need somebody really good to meet with discipleship regularly so you don't fall off a cliff spiritually. But what does it look like to have spiritual life? Well, we know that John 15 tells us it means abiding in Christ in such a way that it results in some of these things, okay? This is the fruit. Obedience to God's Word, which is in direct view in what's going on in Isaiah 5? Are you seeking to obey God's Word, which assumes that you are seeking to know and understand God's Word? God's people are a people of the book. They love God's Word. It is bringing life to them. Not only is it obedience to God's Word, you take joy in God above all else. That's what it works in. Not only that, you get the fruit of trusting God. Trusting God when things are plenty and when things are wanting. You trust God. In other words, when the pruning comes, you see growth. Uh, It works out in the fruit of loving one another. Uh, Or the the fruit of sacrificial love that you are showing to to one another. Just tell me, here's a good way to know if you have spiritual life or not. I'm not saying you're batting a hundred, but when you know that God is bringing a cutting in your life, when some difficulty or suffering comes, Do you see a tendency for you to grow uh, dead in your desires for God? And do you find yourself separating yourself from the people of God? Do you find yourself running and dead and you don't have spiritual life? Or do you sense God drawing you nearer to Himself? Brothers and sisters, God promises to draw us near to Himself in our sufferings as He cuts and prunes us. And not only this, catch me, He says, not only am I going to cut you and it's not going to kill you, it's going to bring spiritual fruit in your life. Sometimes, when God cuts you and it hurts worse, God is about to bring about the most fruitful season that you will have in ministry and the way that God's going to use you. That's what God does. The just God brings about fruit as He cuts us. 
At this point, Israel was probably saying, injustice, unrighteousness, what unrighteousness? Things feel pretty good. I mean, just think about it. In context, it's right during the the reign of uh, Uzziah, right? It's about to get into chapter 6 where we talk about him and his uh, reign and his death. That springs forward into his season of ministry. But before that, in Uzziah's reign, it was a peaceful period. I mean, it was a, a kind of time that would be easy to feel comfortable about life. Things felt good. They looked good. Things seemed to be pretty safe. And here in the midst of this, Isaiah is coming in and saying there's a problem. And they're saying, problem? Life is good. But here's what we find in verses 8 to 30. God explains the kind of justice and injustice he's talking about. And he promises that man will be humbled as God is exalted in justice. Man is about to be humbled as God is exalted in justice. So catch this. In these verses, we're going to move from a love song gone wrong to a lamentation, right? A song of lamentation or lament. He is about to enter into what we would call a woe oracle. It's like the lamenting the death of someone at a funeral. So we move from almost like a wedding song to a funeral song. And that's important because it educates, I believe, the tone that Isaiah would have delivered this with. See, he's not condemning his people. He's not sitting there speaking this word with a a twinkle in his eye and a disconcerned kind of voice as though it's not part of his deal. No, commentary Gary Smith, I think, says it well when he says, in lament, the speaker actually sides with the sorrows of the audience with an emotional attachment. He's actually emotionally attaching himself to the listener so that he is empathizing and and, and he's sad with with him in those words. In other words, there's no twinkle in Isaiah's eyes. He talks about God's just wrath. See, Isaiah likely, hear me, he likely wept as he cried out each successive woe because his heart bled for his people whom he loves. That's the nature of the way that this message, I believe, would have originally been delivered. Not excitedly, but, but brokenly over the nature of what God's people have done, which is, by the way, His people. In other words, here we see God's justice being uh, coming out through the mouth of Isaiah. And I believe this last section is actually structured in such a way that it tells us what His main point is. So here, if you're thinking, like, how is this broken down? It seems a little bit chaotic. Uh, well, actually, there's six woes. And, and I believe that basically what you have is you have two woes followed by two therefores. And then you have a couple of verses that seem to sort of stand out after that as the main point. And then you have four more woes followed by two more therefores. You get that? It's not exactly linear like the way that you would like, but it definitely highlights what God is doing here. And what we'll find is, is that each woe describes a present behavior of God's people. Here's a specific bad fruit that I've seen that results, catch this, in a future therefore promised response by God. And that's what the therefore is there for. So don't miss this. Everything seemed great to the successful, and they never suspected the reversal that was coming. A future was coming that they did not feel or anticipate. And here's how we see it. In verses 8 to 12, notice first we see God's people ran hard after prosperity and pleasure outwardly. God's people ran 
hard after pleasure and prosperity outwardly. There he says in in verse 8, look there with me. He says this, beginning in verse 8. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of His hands. See, God's not condemning money in this first row. Maybe that's what you're thinking, is this woe is condemning just having money. That, that's not what He's doing. See, this isn't the Christianized version of Notorious B.I.G.'s famous proverb, mo money, mo problems. That's not what He's saying. No, in fact, at the end of the day, the Bible teaches something different about money, uh, and it's really concerned the Bible with two questions when it comes to money. One is, how did you get it? And two is, what did you do with it? Those are the big questions that the Bible asks about the money that you have. How did you get it? And what are you going to do with it? And here I believe that that is exactly what we find Isaiah speaking to the people of God about. How did you get your money and what are you doing with your money? Uh, You'll notice that in a a number of different ways. But notice first that it looks like these rich got it through ill-gotten gain. Now maybe using the law, maybe they were using the law to take advantage of the poor. And even evicting their neighbors to add to their own material mansion uh, personally. Uh, That could be what verse 23 means when he's speaking of taking advantage of the poor. He might be talking about the way that they were manipulating the system so that it works for them and takes advantage of others. But did you catch how Isaiah shifts to the future tense? And he says, many houses shall be desolate. And then those fields that they took will be spectacularly unfruitful, just like they have been spiritually. See, we also see how they they used it. That's how they got it, but how did they use it? Well, it goes on to say in the second woe that their money uh, is is gotten uh, and used in this way. The second woe tells us they're drinking and partying from early in the morning to late at night. They are literally entertaining themselves to death. Now, they are thinking all about the money that they have made and taken and the money that they are spending and the pleasure that they are getting from it. And they've completely lost sight in all of this pursuit of pleasure. They've lost sight of the deeds of the Lord and the work of His hands. Did you catch that? Verse 12, that's the problem. They've lost sight of God. It's not bad to have a good party. It's not bad to have material possessions. It's bad when it has absolutely hidden the hands of God from you. That's exactly what we find here. The deeds of the Lord speaks of His creation, of humanity, whom He created created as the pinnacle of His creation. The deeds of the Lord speaks of Israel as a people whom God redeemed out of slavery to Egypt to make a possession of His own. They also forgot God's law, which came with blessings for obedience, but curses for disobedience. And they had forgotten all of that. See, times were good. The bank account was full. The houses were paid for. The family was growing. Everybody had braces. There was peace in the Middle East. And they felt pretty self-sufficient. And their just God 
was nowhere in sight in the present. And they never considered what was coming. They never thought about it. They never looked forward to it. Let me just stop for a second. Did, did you know that good times can even be even more dangerous for you spiritually than bad times? Did you know that good times are dangerous? See, it's easier to look to yourself than God when things seem to be good without God's help. When good just seems to roll and you don't have to pray, you don't need to seek God because everything just seems to work out, that's a dangerous place spiritually. See, here, their just God was nowhere in sight in the present. And they never considered what was going because things were just so good. It's also easier to get caught up in the moment so much that you lose sight of God. And when we lose sight of God, we begin to imagine that God has lost sight of us and doesn't see us. And yet all the while, God is looking for fruit. He's looking at you and He's saying, you may have forgotten me, but I haven't forgotten you. Where's the fruit? That's exactly where this garden has found themselves. This pleasant plant of Judah that God has planted Himself. And the consequences that come, they, they seem extreme, but this is the God of gods and the Lord of lords that made them and created them for a purpose. And He says in verses 13 and 14, the consequence is exile and death. Notice verse 13. He says, Therefore, as a result of pursuing pleasure and, and money rather than me and forgetting me, therefore my people will go into exile for a lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. See, God evicts His people because they evicted each other. And the leaders who made the poor go hungry and thirsty experience the exact same thing. Not only that, notice what verse 14 says. It goes from bad to worse. Exile leads to death. He says in verse 14 that a death monster is coming. Did you catch that? A death monster who has an enlarged appetite for those who have a great appetite for alcohol. Death has opened up, Sheol has opened up his mouth wide for the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude. They will go down, her revilers, and he who exalts in her. Death and exile come for their outward actions, for the fruit of their actions. But catch this. 18-23 to shows that God's people become increasingly corrupt inwardly. It's not just their outward fruit. He says there's also an inward motivation that's going, that's driving this whole train. Notice that there, these four woes in verses 18 to 23 might even show an inward kind of progression that's happening in their hearts. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 18. Listen to see if you can hear it. Verse 18, he goes on to say, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let me be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bride and deprive the innocent of his right. See, in verse 18's woe, you even there see, I believe, potentially a kind of 
progression. Cords are weaker than cart ropes. So it seems at first they merely draw sin with cords of lies. But then their bondage to sin grows to the point that they actually are mocking God, inviting Him to come in all of His holiness as they are dragging their sins behind them. There is no shame at God showing up. They're actually inviting Him. God, if You were holy and righteous and just, then why don't You just show up and do something about this? They have no fear of the Lord. Of course, you know what Proverbs says about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. They have no knowledge. Why? Well, because they have no fear of the Lord. There's no fear of the presence of God in their lives. And notice the next woe in verse 20 reveals that as a result of that, they are morally corrupt. They call good evil and evil good. They don't know the difference between their left and right hands. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Sound anything like maybe you've experienced in, in culture, in our culture? You know, just this past week, I had a a good brother whom I love just come to me and say, you know, my, my wife has left me. I, I've tried to be faithful. I pursued this. And he said, you know what? She told me that she doesn't want to be married to me anymore because she was sure that, that God wants her to be happy more than she wants him to be married, her, to be married to him. Just think about that. God's word couldn't be more clear. He hates divorce. And yet there was no striving or pursuit of that marriage because she has decided that good is evil and evil is good. Culturally, is it any different? Is it any different? Uh, have you noticed how like, we have kind of decided to change the way that morality works and we think God's okay with that? Right? So we look at things like abortion, which is just obviously killing a baby. And we say, oh, well, you know what? It's okay. Why? Well, because justice works in this way. It's the right of the person who is having the baby to get rid of the baby so that they can pursue their own happiness and joy and fulfillment. Friends, that's not the justice of the Lord. That's not what God's Word teaches clearly. And yet, we see in our culture all around us ways that we are calling good evil and evil good. Let me just ask you personally, could it be even as a Christian that there are ways that you've been so affected by culture that you are calling good evil and evil good? Every, hear me, every culture has blind spots. And every individual has blind spots. Ways in which we self-righteously think some things are good when God actually says they are evil and things are evil that are actually good. Are you praying and seeking those in your life? Are you asking others about your blind spots? Brothers and sisters, we need to do that in the community of the church. We need to have the humility to open ourselves up to be changed by God's Word. All of us need to be transformed by the renewing power of Jesus Christ and His Spirit in our lives. Well, this leads, this view leads to a third woe It leads to a new court of authority in verse 21. Notice this woe shows that really post-modernity isn't so new, right? You know, post-modernity, that view that says that I determine truth for myself uh, because we can't really trust that there's any objective meaning out there. There's no truth that we can all agree on because that would sort of assume that there was a God who created that thing and that we're all seeing this thing that actually finds its reality anchored in something else other than us. And if we don't believe that, well, then what's got to be true must be what, like, I decide's true and what you decide's true and you and you, right? And we're just all, we all have a truth that doesn't have to be in line with one another. Like, that's post-modernity. And that's 
like not a new philosophy, that's a biblical philosophy. In fact, if you're just interested just for kicks to see how that plays out, let me encourage you to go read the book of Judges this afternoon. That book will, is really grounded in this one sort of statement where we are told that in those days there was no king in Israel, and what? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you know how that ended. It was disastrous. Israel looked worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in their sin when they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what we find happening here in this third woe. People are doing what they want. They have no uh, concern for their creator God who has made them for a purpose. See, a godless society, don't miss this, a godless society simply lacks the freight necessary to deliver freedom to the poor and meek and weak in any meaningful way. A godless society can't do it. Why? Because only human dignity grounded in their creator, God, can explain why value isn't merely equated to intrinsic power and wealth. We, we have value that is in our God. It's not based on my bank account. It's not based on my intellect. It is based on my God. And if we don't have that, then we're going to have a really hard time explaining why people actually have value other than by how much power and how much bank account they have. But catch God's response to Judah in their sin in verse 2, in, in the two therefores that follow. In the verses that follow, these two therefores, we're told two responses. First, verse 24, they will be devoured like stubble before a flame. Why? Because they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and they despised His word. I guess God cares about His word, right? Not only that, catch verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuge in the midst of the street, for all His anger has not turned away. And His hand is stretched out still. It is an unrelenting arm that has been stretched out against the people of God. Did you catch that? Did you catch that, that God is also angry? He, he's angry with his people. Uh, it actually, this verse 25, it begins and ends with the anger of God. Just in case you forgot from the time that it takes you to get from the beginning to the, of the verse to the end of the verse, that God is angry. He reminds you. Like God is angry with his people. Don't miss that. He says he is angry with them in an intense way. So much so, don't miss this. This might help you understand Edwards a little more. It says that corpses fill the streets as refuge for the fire of his fury. Those corpses are his people. I'm guessing that verses 26 to 30, which go on to describe this perfect army that will come relentlessly against them, devouring them as a lion devours his prey, as he tracks it down. I'm guessing that this speaks of Assyria, who is about to come in 722, and then 150 or so years later, in 586, Babylon is going to come and take away Judah. I think that might be what's in view here, that they will be the arm of God outstretched. It was hard for them to see such devastation coming from where they were, and the safety of their large, ever-growing houses, and with their busy schedules of parties. But catch this, God is saying Assyria and Babylon are the expression of the just anger of God. Circling back to a couple of verses that I skipped, which are the main point of this whole text, notice what he says in verses 15 to 16. Here's what he says. 
And the structure of the woes, I believe this is the center, verses 15 to 16, conveying the main point of the second half of Isaiah 5, and maybe the whole book, and here's what he says, or the whole chapter, and here's what he says. Listen to what they say. Man is humbled, man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Now, don't miss this. God actually justly judges his garden in anger, visiting them with wrath, not for bearing good fruit that glorifies God and blesses others. That's, the, that's what God created them for. So you see, our loving God who cared for his garden, who loved them, provided for them in every way, expecting good fruit, which is a natural result of a good gardener and his good practices, But here we see that our loving God's justified anger and wrath, it will be satisfied. If God did that to Israel, does that not tell us that God is serious about His just wrath and anger? And here's the bad news. We need some bad news this morning. We haven't gotten enough, right? Here's the bad news. Our our loving God is still angry about stinky fruit. It's true. One of the most popular verses after judge not lest you be judged is John 3.16, right? For God to love the world, that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the love of God. Favorite verse. Uh, I love what my wife always says when people quote that verse. They always forget to mention verses 17 and 18, right? What does verse 18 say? John three eighteen. Whoever believes in Him, being Jesus, is not condemned. You hear it? Forgiveness? But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So if you've not trusted in Christ's work of living a perfect life and dying in your place on the cross and being raised again from the dead, that that means that God's still angry with you and that the wrath that you face is even greater than the wrath that we see in this text. See, Jesus says rejecting the gospel means an even greater coming wrath than Sodom and Gomorrah. And even our best deeds apart from Christ are filthy rags and stinky grapes before God, heaping up more judgment for us. I mean, just think about that. Apart from Christ, even our good works are actually adding to the justice and the wrath that's awaiting us. That's what Romans 1.18 says. It says, the wrath of God is revealed for heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, the truth of the gospel, and who Christ is. So as Edward says in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, this is the bad news, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. Being damned up, they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till till an outlet is given. And if God were to remove His hand from the floodgate, which is only by His mercy and grace that He doesn't, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of God's wrath would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. That is the just wrath of God that we deserve. If not for the mercy of God, all of us would receive. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. There's some great news this morning. Here it is. For those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, Jesus himself drank the very last drop of the wrath of God for you. Do you see that? You see the beauty of that? We we deserve to be worse off than those 
Israelites whose bodies were burning in the streets, and yet God in His infinite mercy spared you and me. And He did it at the very cost of His own Son who went to the cross to absorb God's very wrath for you and for me. That's the love of God on display, that He took back not just some wrath of human uh, enemies. See, our biggest problem isn't our human enemies. He actually took away our guilt before Him, our sin that deservingly earned His wrath. He took that away and absorbed every last drop so that we would no longer be enemies but the very children of God. That's the good news. God has has taken back the wrath for those who have put their faith in Him. I love what Romans 3.25 says. Here Paul tells us, he teaches us a $10 Christian word. You want a $10 Christian word? Anybody? I don't have 10 bucks to give you, I'm sorry. It's been a long week. But here's a $10 Christian word. It's worth it. Propitiation. You like that word? It's a big word, right? Let me tell you what it means. It's a big word. It's a beautiful word. It's a word that you need to stick in your vocabulary, you need to meditate on. This is a great word. Propitiation. Propitiation is a word that is used in this text in Romans 3.25 where Paul says, God the Father put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation. That's in the Bible. That big word. By His blood to be received by faith. And you might be thinking, that sounds awesome, but what's propitiation mean? Propitiation means that God's anger and wrath has been satisfied by His own self-sacrifice of His Son, whom He has loved eternally. God absorbed the wrath meant for you in His Son. No one has loved you like God has loved you in Christ. No one has given you freedom and rescue like God has given you in Jesus. Nobody has sacrificed for you the way Christ has sacrificed for you and what God the Father has sacrificed for you. Isn't that a joyous understanding? Propitiation, what a great word. It means that God's anger and wrath, it has been satisfied by His own self-sacrifice. He is no longer angry with you anymore. He is no longer angry with me anymore if I'm in Christ. And not only that, not only is He not angry, it's not one of those things where He just kind of looks at me at the hall and gives me a nod. He says, I love you with the love that I have loved my Son eternally. And that's what propitiation means for us. The wrath has been removed. Do you see the good news? God is angry with everyone outside of Christ, but God is pleased with those in Christ because of Christ's work. So if you haven't done so, let me just encourage you this morning. If you're here and you've not put your faith in Christ, you've not given your life to living for Him, I want to encourage you to do that today and change your life today. Be changed by Christ and His Spirit. See, fruit, fruit is not something that saves us. It's something we need to know. Jesus saves us and justifies us and makes us righteous in such a way that we produce fruits of righteousness that look like the God who saved us. So here's what that should mean for the believer. First, abide in Jesus for fruit. Abide in Jesus for fruit. John 15, great text to read and meditate on. Abide in Jesus. How are you abiding Jesus? Let me, let me just ask you some ways. You, you can be abiding in Jesus. You abide in Jesus. Are you studying God's Word? Did you notice that God really cares about His Word? <laughs> like, so says Isaiah. So says the whole Bible. Are you focusing, looking at, meditating on God's Word such that His thoughts become your thoughts to the degree that you are thinking with the mind of Christ? Meditate on God's Word. 
Pray. Pray. You have one mediator between you and God. That's Jesus Christ. So if you're wanting to abide in Christ, spend much time in prayer as you are having the Son intercede with you before the Father. Asking Him to help you be transformed in the image of that great Son. Seek to observe or live out all that Christ has commanded you. You know, when you go to your Bible, maybe you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, this is a book where like, I kind of can pick and choose what's okay for me to do or what I'm supposed to do. I like to do the stuff that's easy. I don't like to do the stuff that's hard. But let me just encourage you. There's a lot of hard stuff in there for all of us. There's a lot of hard stuff in there for pastors, youth ministers. Uh, there's a lot of hard stuff in there for uh, you know, guys who are uh, lawyers, doctors, teachers. Uh, whatever it is that you're doing, there's a lot, you're always going to find hard stuff in the Bible. And let me just encourage you. When you are seeking to do things that you know that you can't do on your own strength and that are really hard, that's where you probably meet with Jesus the most. Looking to put sin to death and live unto God. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to, by His Spirit, transform you. And if He transform you, that means something needs to change. And all of us hate change, right? So as soon as you feel that pressure of like something's changing, I don't like change, it's like probably God's doing something, right? So don't think of it as bad. Think of it as good. Also, are you living faithfully in a local church, committing yourself to it? You know, the way that God brings about fruit, and a lot of the ways that you see fruit, is actually demonstrated not alone, but in community. How are you living out life with others? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are, are you seeing more relationships and joy being brought out? Are you helping people? Are you finding that actually you're destroying relationships and you're hurting people? Like that's a good picture of whether or not you're actually bearing fruit in Christ and for Christ. It's hard to abide in Christ without abiding in his body, the church. Much fruit is produced in community. Are you finding yourself to be more patient? Is that because you're spending more time alone? And second and finally, share Christ because you know the joy of salvation and the fear of God's justice. You know, those, the, both of those things should be working in our hearts as we're sharing Christ. I know the joy of salvation of the wrath of God that has been absorbed for me. And I know the wrath that is coming for those who don't repent. Two realities that should never escape us as we are loving our families and our co-workers and others. So who are you sharing Christ with? I'm not saying share Christ so that you can become a Christian. I'm not saying share Christ because God will love you more. I'm saying share Christ and be motivated by the fact that there is a a just wrath that's coming that you've been rescued from. You you know where salvation is. You know where the lifeboat is. Bring people to the lifeboat. Hope for fruit of salvation, but aim at loving, a loving warning. See, God's wrath is coming. Are you ready for that? Let's pray.